Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. On this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy of Web3, but when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed towards positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. In this episode, we talk about DAOs, and Rabbit Hole has an intro to DAO skill that guides you through all of the basic tools you need to know in order to be a DAO contributor. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. On today's episode, I'm so excited to have one of my good friends, David Phelps, on the show. This conversation covers quite a lot. One quick thing, this episode was recorded in March and it's being published in May. So a few of the specifics around the joke down mechanics and a couple of other things are a little bit outdated, but almost everything else is up to date. So I hope you enjoy. I am here with David Phelps, who is the founder of Cow Fund. He's also an angel investor. What else do you do, David? Uh, I don't know. I I have this thing called joke down, this thing called eco down also. I always forget how many things you truly do. And they write, all get... I read a publication. <laughs> a publication. I love it. A publication of only my work once every three months. Yeah, it's a successful You take a long time to consider things. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> you contemplate. Well, I'm very excited to chat today about whatever it is we end up chatting about. Before we dive into that, do you want to give a little bit of background in you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole? Yeah, 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 for sure. So there's a few different stories here, but the, the one I've usually told is how I, I had a, a SaaS startup that failed in, in 2016, where we were doing automated billing and uh, invoicing for freelancers and going after freelance market was tough, but what was really killed us was credit card fees and seeing that no one wanted to pay the credit card fees. And that, that was actually going to drive people away from adopting it was one of the things that initially drove me to crypto and this desire to disintermediate legacy financial institutions. But there's a maybe more interesting story that I've been thinking about recently, which is back in 2011, I think two different things happened. And one was that I participated in Occupy Wall Street at the end of that year. And we would go out in the streets saying things like, banks got bailed out, we got sold out, and like whose streets are streets. And the, the entire ethos, I think really based on, on two separate but related concepts. And one was financial sovereignty that the banks had gotten these giant bailouts from the American government after people had lost their homes and people did not get their homes back after the 08 crisis, but banks did get their money back as well. And so this feeling that these intermediaries had not only concocted subprime mortgages that had screwed over a great amount of the population out of their homes, but then had financially benefited off of it, uh, was a cause for concern at that point in time in, in, in 2011. But the other thing that was really crucial to Occupy Wall Street was that it was decentralized. And we would stand around in these circles and you weren't allowed to have any technology on site. And inside the circles, 
you'd have a speaker say one thing and then the circle right around them would uh, shout it back out and the, the concentric circle beyond them would shout it back out to the circle beyond them. And you have this telephone relay in which you would carry a single monologue all the way out through an entire crowd by creating these concentric circles. And the entire principle was that there were no real defined leaders that were visible or notable. It was organized in a decentralized way, but we were trying to find coordination structures to be able to communicate effectively through that. And of course, at the time, it was seen as an extremist movement. It was certainly not, I think, well perceived in by either the right or the left at that time. But it obviously had massive repercussions from the Arab Spring forward to the populism Bernie campaign. And then I would say as well, crypto is a really big part of it as, you know, I think a lot of people know the story that, that of uh, Satoshi had initially put in um, that amazing timestamp into the initial block of Bitcoin. There was just a newspaper headline from the time about the crash and the banks getting bailed out as well. And so all of this, I think, also really had this profound impact on me. I was on un unemployment at the time and I was living on $4 sandwiches because I didn't have any money and, and thinking that there was this possibility of these collective groups that could come together was incredible. And of course, technically it failed and it failed because we didn't have the technology to really coordinate and it failed because we were operating on state property. And eventually the state came in and in this incredible moment that's seldom remarked upon about 3 a.m., Bloomberg said in the police and you could see tear gas, even though they denied that there was tear gas as everyone was driven out of Zuccotti Park. And so this was really, I think, a wake up call that the way to make this succeed would be using technology and trying to do this in a coordinated way that would probably be more online as well and more global too. So that was one thing that happened in 2011. The other thing that happened in 2011 was that I had a friend who was a junkie and she was buying heroin off the Silk Road and she was telling me about it. And she was saying it was just totally incredible that she could get this packages in the mail. And all she had to do was spend something like a hundred of, of what she was calling this thing called Bitcoins. And, you know, it was like just a hundred Bitcoins, whatever that was at that point in time, $5 to get this packet of heroin in the mail. And so she was buying Bitcoins and then she was trading them in for heroin and telling me how amazing this thing was. And I was like, you're out of your mind. This sounds totally niche and insane. And I can't believe you're doing this thing that's so dangerous for yourself, but also criminal. Um, and... I've been thinking recently, if only I'd been able to draw the connections between these two things in 2011, <laughs> the insight it would have given me uh, would have been incredible. But I, I didn't draw that connection between, on the one hand, having a decentralized movement for financial sovereignty, and on the other, having an actual cryptocurrency that you could use to buy drugs and evade uh, regulations. And so that was not the moment I fell down the crypto rabbit hole. But <laughs> That's a whole story about how I didn't fall down the crypto rabbit hole when I wish I did. But just something that, that I think has, has really struck because those two poles of the decadent, right, fun side of being able to communicate with anyone you all online and this very serious side of creating financial sovereignty, both of those are, are the, the two sides of being a degen in Web3 that have uh, definitely carried through, I think, over, over the past decade as well. Wow. I really like the how I didn't fall down the crypto rabbit hole question. It's almost more interesting to hear worlds in which you were exposed to something and still actively didn't become interested in it. And I feel like a lot of that speaks to the power of money more broadly, regardless of, of what you're using it for. <laughs> like the ability to move around yeah regulations to buy something online that you typically wouldn't be able to buy or how bad it can be when you have people who are not cautious 
with monetary systems that have a lot of power over them. And like to me, both of those identify this fact that I feel like we still we, – we are so immersed within. We're like fish in water that we don't fully understand it or are able to comprehend it in the moment, which is just that money is insanely powerful today. And it was in 2008 and it was when your friend was buying heroin. Well, and that's the interesting thing is the reason that I probably didn't correlate these, right, was because the Occupy Wall Street I was with were all, you know, broke, unemployed hippies who were out there very angry at the ways they've been dispossessed by the state and left to their own devices. And the feeling of financial sovereignty was not just an ambition. It was also a sentence from the state that people were now on their own financially. Uh, I don't know that it was totally seen as a good thing. Like part of the idea was collective solidarity because being left on our own devices was not great. And then the opposite end, you have the rich libertarian side of this, which is my friend who is from rich private school background. And she was, of course, like was building social networks with some of the richest people in the world at rehab. <laughs> so she would go and they would, they would connect there. And that was their social circle. And so of course I didn't connect these things because on the one hand, you have the poor leftist solidarity group. On the other hand, you have the individualist rich person. But what they have in common is this desire to evade and disintermediate the state, right? For both of these groups, the state is very much the enemy for actually being able to have your own autonomy and sovereignty as a human being uh, and is actively working against you. So it's fascinating that that's been an uneasy coalition all throughout the history of crypto as well, right? Between the rich libertarians who just want to be able to use their money however they want, not pay taxes, not have responsibility to anyone else, but actually, you know, be able to enact what they want without state regulation. And then on the other hand, people want to create their own structures that might be their own regulation uh, collectively as well. And so, yeah, even, even in that moment in 2011, it was all there, which is really wild. What stands out to me about that is... I definitely think there's a lot of rhetoric in crypto and Web3 about nation states being this like power that people want to get away from and all of this stuff. And I think there's something powerful about opting out of systems. I do wonder if we're creating our own versions of these systems that will also be very hard to opt out of. You know, people say DAOs will become the new nation states. If you believe Ethereum, for example, is effectively a nation state, and if most of the finances of 2028, or it's probably way too soon, but however many decades in the future, will end up settling on Ethereum, which is completely immutable, anyone can access it. Like, are we really avoiding that type of state, or are we just building our own version that also creates these challenges. Yeah, to break that one apart, it's a big question, I think, whether or not if you look at online sub-communities and then you look at states, right, is this a spectrum or are these opposite poles? On the one hand, you can say it's a spectrum, like a DAO uh, is a state that has its own currency, its own monetary policy in place, its own system of governance. That's a state, but it's a small one, right? They might be more sustainable. Everybody knows each other and actually feel some attachment to each other. Unlike a giant state where you have all these competing interests that are torn against each other and achieve gridlock. So that's the spectrum argument for why smaller is better. But I think the poll argument to say actually these are opposite things would be that the real difference isn't size, it's optionality. Like like the real difference for the DAO or the subcommunity is that you have the optionality to leave it or to join it as you want. And I think that's what you're calling attention to, Chase, right? Like you're saying like, you know, are we stuck with Ethereum? 
And, and then you have to go back to when Ethereum was forked and say, there, there is at least some historical example of Ethereum actually going a different direction and not being immutable. And so as much as we talk about trustlessness and we talk about you know, immutability, that's not the case. Like these are all systems of social constructs built by social consensus. And so then and I think this, this is where it gets really interesting is like, what does it mean if anybody could do what Vitalik did with the Ethereum fork? What if anyone could fork their own blockchain? What if every DAO had their own blockchain? So this is something like Celestia is working on where you can imagine every DAO has their own blockchain and you just fork it. And so now you have double optionality because you have the optionality to come and to go and to leave the DAO, join the DAO be part of it or not. But you also have the optionality to fork it and say, you know what, there's bad actors here. Maybe they hacked us or maybe we just disagree with them. Let's go another direction. Like, I think the really interesting one to think about is we've had these totally inconsequential sanctions against Russian civilians that are destroying the financial livelihoods of civilians in Russia in the hope that we're going to be able to somehow get them to revolt. And you can totally understand why this decision was made and why this seems like the most prudent thing to do. But ultimately, the people who everyone agrees should be suffering are the oligarchs, and they're not the ones who are actually suffering. Well, you can imagine with a fork, right? If anyone could fork their own blockchain or fork their own community, what if you had social consensus to create your own social system to say, you know what, but we're going to erase the oligarchs from this. The same way we, we erase the hacker from the DAO, like we're going to erase the oligarchs, and they no longer are viable in our system that we're creating. We can identify them and we can take out their transactions. So, so I think optionality becomes this really powerful thing, not just in opting in and out of the DAO, but the optionality to create a new version of it as well. And that's just something that's never existed in a traditional nation state. And so that I think is like where the real promise is, is really in the forking. I think that's a really interesting perspective. And where my brain goes is this question of the role this is like the most political episode we've ever done and i don't even mean political mm -hmm. by like political mm, left right whatever just like theory which is really interesting but you and i have talked about the rise of populism on the internet and more broadly and forking at the end of the day comes down to where legitimacy is the reason exactly. that ethereum as it stands today is the blockchain that we refer to as Ethereum as opposed to the original version, which was not forked, is because everyone moved over. And so I wonder if there's an interplay between populism and the need for legitimacy, which is effectively how many people can you get to move over and use our system instead? Completely. Yeah, yeah. This is a very tight relationship. So we had this amazing conversation in Denver with Danny Zuckerman from, from Ceramic, who I hopefully will not destroy his argument by saying the, there's always been these two poles. On the one hand, of a system where it's centralizing, you trust the experts because they're the ones who are spending all their time understanding a field, but they are not impartial actors either. They are there to defend their own interests, and often their interests are elite interests as well because they occupy elite roles by necessity as centralized authority figures. And on the other hand, you actually have a system based on the mass consensus of people as a whole deciding what they believe is true and, and what they want, and that's populism. But then there's the challenges of coordination and of information, and specifically the coordination of information as well. And left awry, you start getting 17% of Americans believing that there are lizard worshiping Illuminati billionaires who are pedophiles who are ruling over the earth. And but. On the other hand, if you went towards the elite angle, you get all of these experts who are telling us to invade every country for the sake of helping giant oil corporations. And so, so it's thinking, how are we stuck between these two poles where, you know, on the one hand, you have the experts who are not acknowledging their incredible bias. 
On the other hand, you have people who are well-intentioned, but don't necessarily have the correct coordination of information as well. And I think that's increasingly just an issue because the past 10 years have so much been about user-generated systems of every single kind. And so we've often talked about user-generated content in terms of the creator economy, you know, that anyone can be a TikTok star. I was saying this earlier, if you're a TikTok star, you're like a Hollywood star who owns the means of production, right? Like now you have the camera and you create the content as well and you perform it in a lo-fi way, but in a way that is in theory very empowering. But you see that everywhere. Like, I mean, Airbnb is user-generated hotels. You look at what happened with the Bernie or the Trump campaign, like that's user-generated politics. It's people coming together as grassroots campaigns. And so all of this is a product of social media and of an increasingly decentralized world that we live in of giving more and more power to users who come together and create these collective movements. But there's the challenge of coordination of information uh, in doing this uh, to ensure it doesn't go awry. And so, yeah, social consensus becomes this really fascinating thing because you can have systems where people can create different forks for different belief systems. And then, and then you see which ones are actually successful and which ones actually draw people. Um, based on the social consensus and based on their understanding as well. But what it means is that like financial capital is just increasingly at the mercy of social capital because the financial success of Ethereum versus Ethereum Classic is a matter of social capital, is a matter of believing Vitalik and believing Vitalik's vision to say, let's trust Vitalik in taking this, right? It's the social capital behind it that draws it. So anytime we want to talk about trustless systems, we're not creating trustless systems in any way whatsoever. We're creating systems that are entirely dependent on the trust that comes from social consensus about the people we want to follow. And and that's also the danger is that you go so far towards populism that you end up back with the, uh, totalitarianism because you're just following those with the social capital to determine your social consensus. It's going to be so wild when we have these dynamics play out, but with financial systems behind them. And I feel like there's also an interesting conversation to be had about liquidity and the role of capital more broadly. Mm. I I don't actually know how to think about liquidity in this world in one sense of saying liquidity is really powerful. And so having capital go to one or another fork of a blockchain mm. is mm. actually really important. And we don't, I don't think, have very good models for how incredibly liquid culture memes, like whatever it is, will change our society. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's so many ways to tear into this, right? Like one idea of liquid capital is just that it's this freeform thing that can take on any form anywhere in the world. So just by creating this like global system in which I was talking about Marx earlier today, who has this idea of fixed capital, which is like stuck in place, like an airport versus circulating capital, which is liquid capital that can take on any function whatsoever anywhere in the world. And the nice thing about liquid capital, I, I think for Marx at least, is that you no longer have all the friction from fixed capital. In fixed capital, you have to overstock everything in advance. You have to build it up front. So that takes a giant loan out that you have to pay back over time. You have falls into disrepair. You have to do repairs on it. You have all these extra costs that go into it just to keep that system alive. And that's tons of friction that has to come from, you know, that money has to come from somewhere. Whereas with liquid capital, it just goes around the world freely and it can serve as itself. And that's why DeFi is, DeFi is incredible because DeFi is backed. Like for DeFi, you put down, DeFi is collateralized. Like you get a loan 
two things are happening that don't happen in a traditional system. One is that you're staking that actual money. So it's not being spent somewhere else. Whereas if you went to a bank and you put $1 into the bank, they would then loan that out to someone else. And yeah, but the other is that you're, you are the lender, right? Like you are the one who's actually like getting the money back. Whereas a bank would loan it out to someone else, you're getting that loan back to yourself. So there, there, there's all these ways that like liquid capital seems really promising, but at the same time, it's always in service of just like creating more capital and like serving more loans and hyper financializing us so that all we're doing is living in the shadow of like more alpha all the time. So I think that's one way to think about it. I love this idea also of like culture itself becoming more liquid, right? That, that especially with AI, we can just translate anything from any part of the world and we're like more globally in touch in some ways where, but memes in particular are like a universal language that can spread. <laughs> like in theory, you could have a meme go through any culture and take on tons of different forms as well. A lot like capital, that it can be used for all these different purposes too. So yeah, this is this is powerful. And then, and then the final piece I think here is like this idea of having treasuries um, that are liquid. Uh, not totally, but like traditionally, if you're a company and you raise money, you might raise $2 million at a $20 million valuation. That $18 million that was created out of thin air doesn't really exist anywhere. It's the stock, but you can't really do anything with that stock. Technically, you have $2 million in your bank account. Everyone says you're worth $20 million, but the 18 difference is just the stock that's being held. Whereas with a DAO, if you raise $2 million at a $20 million valuation, you actually have tokens that you could technically use in some ways. They're technically liquid, right? That represent $18 million. So you could go and trade them. You could token swap them. You can invest them. And that's wild. That's wild to have not only that you create your own money and you have access to it, but you're able to then take that money and deploy it in all these ways that you couldn't before. It creates all these new conditions for liquidity as well. So I think it's just going to create these like tons of bubbles. And uh, I mean, we're already seeing this, right? Like all these barren bull cycles that will just accelerate faster and faster because we're essentially just accelerating the conditions for investment and investment cycles. I was thinking about this the other day. For a lot of industries, it's really hard to quantify bubbles and busts and all that kind of stuff. But in crypto, it's very normalized because we have bulls and bears and everything has a price. And while you mm. typically have like private rounds for other types of technology and you would have bubbles, it's just way more evident in crypto and it affects way more people because everyone actually owns the assets. Even if it's not a large percentage of the assets, if you are my sister who bought ETH recently, an ETH bubble bursting makes a pretty big difference to you if you're holding it as an investment or whatever. So it's kind of interesting. I think it's not even just like the speed that this is happening at, but it's the sheer number of people that it reaches that feels different and that it's quantifiable in a way that others aren't. And, and, and I think that there's something else that's really incredible about all of this, which is that you could argue that volatility is a feature of this system and actually part of the attraction of it. The same way that you might be like, if you're in a relationship where you're with someone who's like sending mixed signals, that's usually like much more toxic than if they were negative because you're pulled in and you're pulled out. And that kind of volatility, that is a emotional roller coaster that you go on. And there's a, I don't want to say it's fun, but the fact that 
first of all, you're on that emotional roller coaster and it's happening so quickly and it's so accelerated. Definitely, I think, is enticing. But the more important piece is it's a roller coaster you're on with tons of other people because this is a social capital phenomenon where you are going on this, you're reading about it, you're participating with others, you're in discussion groups, you're in a telegram with 30,000 other people. Like, like it, it is this collective experience of you all taking the ride of terror together that is actually like relationship building. And so it's totally frightening. There is, I think, a really horrible moment at the peak of the 2017 bull market where the New York Times wrote an article about all the insane money that everyone was making and ended the article by talking about a housekeeper who just put in her entire life fortune. And of course, it was like mm -hmm. that article came out like the day that it was at the peak. So I don't want to trivialize this. I do think that there's a way in which the volatility actually brings more people into the space because it's like it is a financial ride of a lifetime, but it's also a social ride of a lifetime to do that. And again, it's that mixing of financial and social capital creates whole new dynamics that then accelerate that as well, right? Where you have more people jumping in and jumping out because they're all trying to do it together and they're all trying to coordinate with each other as well. Yeah, I mean, that's like the people act like having gone through a bear market is like frat hazing, you know, yeah. like people really feel that way. Means, people love it. There's an element. Of, yeah, you get to be a vet. You're, I'm not one of those kids who's like never lived through a bear market. People talk about being an OG. They've been in the space for three years and they're an OG. Like <laughs> there's nowhere else in the world where that would be the case for any other industry. But yeah, and that's normal. People in the space three years are talking about how you know dissatisfied they are with the young crop of the new generation who doesn't get <laughs> it and hasn't lived through what they've lived through. <laughs> but the value system is also very different, I think. And that's really? a generalization, but I think the narrative around crypto has really shifted over the past few years where in some ways it was opting out of a system. I think it's still opting out of a system, but a very different system. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a question of like, you know, to some degree, I think whatever anyone proclaims about individual sovereignty, I think most people in crypto are, are fundamentally looking for some sort of social solidarity. I could be wrong about that, but it feels as though there's a movement, there's an ideology, there's other people to talk to, you coordinate with them, you make decisions together. Like all of that is fundamental to how finance is being done. And it really does change things when you reach that moment that crossover line that I think we reached probably a year and a half ago, where Wall Street starts following retail investors <laughs> instead of vice versa and saying, you know what, let's throw our weight behind them because they're leading the way. So the question is like, but what what is that solidarity? Like, like, why are you there? Are you there because you believe strongly in privacy? Are you there strongly because you believe in partying? Are you there because you love you just love trading stocks? Right. Uh, are you there because you believe this is a more inclusive community. And so, you know, the growth, the growth of subcommunities also means a battle against subcommunities as well. Like the stronger each of these subcommunities grow, the stronger they grow against each other too. And so that's increasingly, I, th I think, just what we're seeing where um, solidarity is the basis. But one great way to build solidarity is to build antagonism with other groups that are forming solidarity as well. <laughs> and so that's a new form of solidarity uh, within Web3 is to find the other groups that you are trying to oppose as well. This is why I'm so intrigued by and kind of scared about the opportunity for people always say psyops, like psychological operations on people. I think even if you look at the rise of the Reddit retail investor and all these things, narratives aren't that hard to shape if you're mm -hmm. good at it and you know what you're doing. 
And having an internet money that allows us to not only create like value systems, but directly reflect the narratives that exist, that scares me a little bit. Like the reactivity of these types of markets. I don't know. I I don't know why it scares me. I suppose that's the other question. But like it does (laughs) – it feels like we're playing with fire a little bit. Uh, We are. You know, as long as this is fun dog coins, it seems great. But we've been in a bull market for – a macro bull market for basically 14 years now, which is not really a great time to get complacent. So yeah, as long as like fundamentally everyone believes it's just going to keep going up. Yeah, it'll go down in the meantime, it'll crash 95%, but we've seen over and over again, it goes back up. And as long as that's true, everyone's fine. You just hold it out and you're okay if you know that. And there is an argument like that the markets are reflexive because everyone knows that they will become true. There's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but there is also a entire 500 year history of bubbles operating exactly like this as well. So yeah, there, there is, I think, reason to be scared. The other, the other thing I was going to say about like magical internet money is just the term meme coin is such a beautiful term because memes and coins are so similar to each other, right? And being these shapeless things that take on any form that people give them in traversing culture around the world. And I think it's also anti-narrative narrative, narrative, right? Because the narrative is that there is no meaning. And so the narrative is this actually, there is no underlying like discounted cash flow analysis I could perform in a spreadsheet that would justify the worth of this. It's whatever we want to believe it's worth. And so it's a self-reflexive narrative. My, My friend Thomas said that There's never been a time in history where people have been more self-aware. And it's such a great point because it's probably always true. (laughs) Probably at any point you are in history, people have never been so self-aware because you learn from the lessons of the past and they affect how you operate. But to be in this moment where it's not just the art is being valued as money and NFTs, it's that money is being valued as like an art project in, in Dogecoin. Like this is really wild. And it really is, I would say on a, on a larger level, an admission that we've abandoned narrative in some ways, like that religion is overall in a perilous place in the world right now. Uh, and then there's a search for meaning that people are having trouble finding. And then a celebration of it in a kind of Dadaist way of saying, this is incredible that we have these coins that are only worth what we decide they're worth. And so you can read it either way. It's really empowering to be able to recognize the power of social consensus and social capital and building financial capital. And that's the great lesson of Dogecoin, but it's also scary to realize that there is nothing underpinning it. <laughs> I had Yancey from Meta Label as one of the interviews. And one of the things that Yancey said that blew my mind when we were talking about labels and this idea of creating purpose alongside other people was basically this concept of a post-individualist society. So this idea that I sort of proposed like what you're talking about where – religions and all these things used to be ways that people came together in at least like the Western hemisphere. There's been this movement towards individualism where people have abandoned a lot of those communities. And Yancey was sort of saying that one of the really interesting things is that by having people be like individuals, what has ended up happening is people have the freedom to choose their purpose, their groups that they want to be with, and in this context, their narrative. And there is something really powerful to having the freedom to choose your narrative. And I kind of feel like more broadly in in this conversation, that's really what it comes down to, where it's like, 
if there is no true definite money, for example, you might as well choose to believe that Dogecoin is the ultimate money if that's a narrative that you enjoy. So you know? right. Right. Yeah, like why choose to adopt a belief system that doesn't serve you right. when you could instead choose to adopt a belief system because it's probably just as true as any other belief system that is fun to you or useful, you know, whatever it might be. That's, it's an incredible thing where, where Dogecoin is social capital turned into financial capital, right? It's people coming together and deciding this thing is worth something and therefore it is worth something. But it's something more than that. It's not just that it's a social construct that becomes finance. It's also people being self-aware about the fact this is a social construct that then drives its financial value. So it's this like endlessly reflexive thing of people's acknowledgement that this thing isn't worth anything and therefore could be worth anything. <laughs> it's, it's really wild. And definitely, yeah, a, a little a little scary reflecting where we are socially. I mean, some, something I think you know about a lot is just looking at how technologies over the past 50 years have increasingly moved us towards isolation, right? You go from the cinema where you go out to, in the 1930s, 1950s, to be with a group of people, to the TV, where now it's just with your family in the 80s, 90s, to now it's the computer screen where it's just you. And you see that, you know, with headphones as well. Like headphones have just totally you know, dominated over the past 15 years in sales. Like that's increasingly an isolated experience. And it makes sense because fundamentally our connections and our social interactions are happening online. And so increasingly, like our physical world is becoming more and more isolated as our imaginary internet world becomes more and more connected. But there's it's not just a direct correlation. Like they, they, it's a flywheel effect. Like you becoming more isolated physically makes you want to reach out to more people online. You reaching out to more people online makes you more isolated physically. And so it's a loneliness crisis in some ways too. And then, and that's what this is reflecting. It's reflecting on the one hand, the sense that there is no meaning, we're alone. On the other hand, this extreme desire for, for social connection, I think as well. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I think it's wild because it also, it scales social connection. I'm not saying in practice always, but there is this sense, I think, that there are a lot of people that I definitely wouldn't have met had I not been on Twitter, for example. There are also a lot of people that I would have met if I hadn't been on Twitter probably. So it's interesting because it feels like it goes both ways. I'm very curious longer term. What do you think the utopian for you version of Web3 is? Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I'm, I'm a good person to ask because I don't. I'm always obsessed with paradoxes and tensions. And it's very hard for me to actually think clearly <laughs> about anything. I, I think that the, the utopian vision is probably one in which our physical needs are being met. We are able to somehow marketize negative externalities of the world that have never been marketized. So like stuff like pollution. And we are able to use that to form a better relationship with our in real life environments and actually hopefully ecologically build a better world in the actual physical world as well. I think if, if our ultimate answer for Web3 is that it's building great digital cities. I love that and I'm in favor of it, but that leaves us very much at the mercy of a very fucked physical world at a moment of extreme crisis. If, if fundamentally we're not thinking long-term, how are we actually trying to create a more sustainable physical environment for the world around us that we have a responsibility to, the humans around us that we have a responsibility to, but also the plants, the animals, and like the planet that we have a responsibility to, then this is all just a panacea, right? This is all just us blindfolding ourselves 
um, to try to escape a burning world. And maybe it's that, and maybe this is a good way to have a good time in the meantime, but I'd like to think, I'd like to think it's the, it's going to be a little bit bigger and more important than that. David, that's like the best. What's your utopia? It's, it's either going to be mm-hmm. that we fix this shit or this is just going to trading dog yeah. coins is the best way to die yeah. out of this burning hell hole while we're still here. <laughs> yeah, just trading dog coins into the abyss. Right. But that's the way. Yeah, I like that you asked me for utopian. I gave you the most dystopian vision. I could well, you gave a utopia. Just it was contrasted with a dystopia, which I think most utopias need to be. I think that's why it's so hard for us to imagine utopias. But I know EcoDAO has also been getting at a lot of this. Do you want to talk a little bit about the impetus behind EcoDAO? Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a few, I think a few different things that that we were thinking through. But one is that NFTs are this incredible unlock for people to be able to put their money towards causes they care about. And the reason for that is because you can always resell it. So if you give a traditional donation, it's tax deductible. That's nice. So you give a $100 donation and you deduct $30 of taxes, but you still basically paid $70. Whereas with an NFT, if you give a $100 donation and get an NFT, you could then potentially resell that later. Maybe it'll make... Maybe it'll be worth more, maybe it'll be worth less. But fundamentally, you can put a lot more money towards that knowing that you have this item that you could then resell. And so I think that fundamentally was the insight to say, we don't live in a world in Web 2 or where our desires for how we want to spend our money are aligned with what actually is a good way to spend money. Uh, and my hope is that NFTs can change that. So I think that was fundamentally it, was to say, could we actually create beautiful NFTs that support the environment and by wonderful artists who we can really drive funds towards as well, and then try to use the money that we raise to actually build in real life communities as well. Thinking that ecology is, of course, building a relationship with the real world. And if there's some small way that we're doing that, then that's also very meaningful. Hopefully helping it avoid become, avoiding become, whatever the phrasing is, a burning hellhole. That would be good. Dogecoin filled abyss. Right, 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 right. (laughs) I also want to make sure that we talk about JokeDAO because I feel like JokeDAO is everyone's favorite Web3 project at this moment. That's just you, but I appreciate that. No, I have so many conversations (laughs) with people about how wild JokeDAO is. Yeah. It's like a very complex board game mm-hmm. where nothing is serious, but mm. it is all enforced. And mm. I think that's a fun dynamic. So I I think the, first of all, I will say the contrast between EcoDAO and JokeDAO is like my favorite thing because one <laughs> of them is like NFTs that fund like ecology and, and making sure that rainforests are protected. And then the other one is just like, Dick jokes all year round. I mean, I mean I'm not, not from one, you. I'm not the one who. You're I, not the one writing the jokes. No, I'm not. I'm not you get yeah, to pass I'm off all responsibility of anything that you want to write. Yeah. Um, well, also, I, I should say, twenty percent of, of proceeds from Joke Down NFTs also go towards charity. So there, there is also a, a giving component too. Um, what part of Joke Down do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk about the joke race and specifically the joke piece of it, or do we I want to talk, talk about at first? Why did? How did you even think of Joke Down? Okay, so this is, I don't know if I can dox them, but I also feel bad not crediting them. So I had a a couple conversations with two different friends, and one was about creating, (laughs) I can't believe I can tell the story, creating a Twitter account called Silicon Valley Stand-Up that would just be like a stand-up comedian who operates out of Silicon Valley with terrible jokes, just like the absolute worst stand-up comedy you can imagine with someone being like, Amazon, why am I ordering pans from a river? Uh, And then (laughs) just like a series of these absolute 
non-jokes. And then the other conversation I had was with someone who was like, oh, you should turn those into NFTs. And then actually you should have GPT-3 turn them into NFTs. And and from there, I thought, well, wait, there's something to this. <laughs> um, what if we can incentivize the system? So I think like the broader point to probably make is that I think of DAOs as games, like completely, uh, if they're successful, I think DAOs have to be games. And I actually think NFTs as well. Like part of the shift culturally in, in how we're creating is away from the creator who creates an object that others consume in this passive way. And instead it has to be, I create an object that you use to then co-build and co-create with me. And like permissionless building is such a core component of Web3, but it's something we've seen before Web3, like TikTok is fundamentally, or Twitter are both about taking someone else's element and then recomposing it with your own commentary on top of it. And so this kind of montage layering and like collage creations where anybody can create something easily because they're just building on top of someone else's work. That's already been so core to culture before Web3 permissionless building in some Like ways. remix culture. I mean, even like rap and R&B, that was very much. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you really want to go back to it's like black hip hop artists or jazz, right, as well. Um, very, very much in creating remix culture, going back hundreds of years, different blues songs, yeah, as an old tradition that would be riffed upon, right? That goes back a long, long ways and could carry different meanings. It was like memes. Even now, like a lot of, I'm, uh, I'm fairly obsessed with blues music. Uh, a, a lot of it is very much still debated in terms of what the meaning is. Like, what is the train in a lot of these blues songs? Is that train a sexual thing? Is that train a religious thing? It's going towards the tunnel in which it's actually like bringing us to God? Is it actually a historical item, right? Like it, it, you know, where it's the, yeah, it, it represents liberation. Or is it the train, right, taking prisoners? So it can take on all these different connotations like a meme can as well. Yeah, we want to go back there for, I think, remix culture for sure. But now it's become the dominant mainstream. And so I think like one thing that I'm always trying to think about is like a decent creator for NFTs or for DAOs is someone who creates a game that they play. Um, and so they're setting up a structure and then they operate within it as well. Better, I think DAO NFT creator creates a game that others play, right? Where they've set the rules and then others operate within it. But I think that the kind of the greatest and the most interesting is the one where you give people the tools to create their own game in some ways. And, you know, for, Whatever many issues I have with Bored Apes, like really understood this playbook of we're going to give you the tip of the iceberg and then you build around it. Um, so you create your own culture for what you want it to be. And then we've seen that repeatedly throughout NFTs. And I think DAOs have a lot to learn from that. Like, like fundamentally, DAOs need to be about like, how are you incentivizing people to create their own games? So Joke.Out technically is a game. Like it's a game in which people submit jokes. And if you vote on the number two joke, you get paid uh, or rewarded rather uh, more joke tokens as well for winning. Um, but so not the number one. Just not the number one. Yeah, you can't yeah. go over. So you're always in danger <laughs> where if you put too many votes towards it, then you go to number one and you lose. Which is a fun way to try to think about like power of whales and how you curb for power of whales as well within a system. What's fun about this is like the way to win is you you have to form a team. Like you want to find other people who you can collaborate with so you can all try to collude and and vote on, on that item that um, you really want to win. And so... What's cool and amazing about this is that technically, you know, JokeDaz created this game and then other people play it, but really they're all creating their own rules because they're all coming up with strategies and they're all coming up with like their own team formations and their own rules for whether or not you join that team as well. 
Uh, and so there's these mini games that are being created, which is the game of team formation and the game of relationship building. And that's fundamentally what JokeDAO is about. It's not about finding the best joke. The actual jokes that win have nothing to do with quality whatsoever. But what it has to do is the relationship building that goes into that. And you start thinking like this creates a really interesting question for governance in DAOs generally, which is, is the goal of governance to come up with the best decision objectively in terms of what the DAO should do? And, and what does that mean that it's the best decision? Or is the goal to create consensus and relationship building that get people aligned with each other so that they share a vision and then they're excited by that decision and they're excited to execute on it. And so part of my premise would be that like the best decision in a DAO is first of all, less important than the relationship building that goes into it. But second of all, it's only the best decision because of the relationship building. It's only the best decision because it is the thing that everyone else is aligned around. And so if you create this incentivized system that's gamified, for people to form relationships and work together towards what they think is the best solution, you can actually uncrack a lot of DAO governance issues with this as well. So yeah, I'll stop there for a second. <laughs> it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the the things that need to happen with DAO governance are very much around relationship and trust building, where even if you want to op optimize for the best outcome, the way to do it is not to ask people what is the best outcome or what is the way what is the way to get to this outcome? The best way to do it is to figure out who people trust most to get to that outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because I, I see your perspective when it comes to social coordination. And I feel like a lot of it comes down to just as the complexity of something grows, you cannot, with a group of people, find the correct answer. You have to do a social coordination game. Or, 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 or say there is no such thing as a correct answer. The correct answer is whatever people are most excited by that's going to ensure the long-term sustainability of this project, right? Like, that's the correct answer. And the other, the other side is to say, like, if there is some objective, like, the correct answer is the one that will maximize profit over the next four years for a doubt, if that's the right answer. And even there, there's a lot of variables you have to decide upon. What's also nice about consensus building uh, mechanisms is that those who disagree and are penalized are now incentivized to fork it and say, you know what, screw you guys. We totally disagree with this so much so that we were willing to fight against the dominant team and declare a, a losing answer that actually penalized us. We we're going to fork this and we'll do our own version of it. And then you get biodiversity where you can see which one is going to play out and which one will do better. But you actually, you can, like, incentivizing consensus is important, but so is incentivizing forks. Incentivizing disagreement and incentivizing people to create their own version is also really helpful. And again, it's the, the relationship building is just so important because, like, DAOs have this problem where acquisition is so easy for a DAO. You have a big mission. Everyone's excited by it. They want to join the Discord. There's maybe a token or a potential airdrop, and so they get in. And then there's very little for most people to do once they're there. They have to check Discord, and it's a pain. It's overwhelming with the number of messages. A new opportunity comes along. You don't really know people. It's all online. You're not dealing with them like through Discord, and you're not building any relationships. And so acquisition is easy precisely because retention is hard. And so anything that's building relationships and building retention, that is going to ensure the long-term long -term success of the DAO, because that is actually what is getting people doing shit together, where they can actually communicate and they can build that relationship in a way that makes the DAO meaningful to them and makes them care about governance as well. It would be really interesting for a DAO to experiment with making enough of a container for people who currently, they don't have things for them to take on. But if they coordinated together, they could build their own version of something that exists within a DAO. Like most of the DAOs that I'm part of right now, they're, they don't actually have work for new people to do it's for the most part. 
It's a huge problem, right? Yeah, if you're shipping product, you need six people maybe. And you can have 600 people excited, but like fundamentally the DAOs that have been successful are the ones based on investment because that's where scale matters. You want as many people as possible to throw money into something. Whereas if you're a DAO that's a builder, you want as few people as possible. Like the more people you have, the, the more you're diluting that population and making people feel unwanted and unused. So investment DAOs have been great because they are successful and direct correlation with scale, builder DAOs are really hard because they're unsuccessful in relationship to scale. So it is about, yeah, how do you create those relationship building techniques? I think that the next iteration of joke DAO is going to be really fun because anyone will be able to set up these races so they can use it for governance and making governance decisions and like actually having a gamified governance that hopefully will be very fun. They, they can do it for endorsements, right? To say, if you believe that one person is the one we should trust, Let's use this to decide who that person is. But they could also just set up their own games on other stuff besides jokes. They could also just do a proposal on your favorite animal and then all have a contest in order to win more tokens that way as well. And like DAOs will be able to pay them out for, for doing this as well and for building that relationship. So, or like a meme contest. That's very yeah. tangible. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Come up with our branding. Like how should we advertise ourselves? Let's do decentralized content creation where everyone comes up with a meme and then we decide which one we like. And then, yeah. For voting on the winner, you get paid and the winner also gets paid. And now you've paid people out for their work, which is important, but like paying people out for their work is step one. Step two is like work that's actually meaningful for people <laughs> that they actually like doing. Uh, and so hopefully, yeah, this is gamified in a way uh, that's really enjoyable and then it builds relationships. Joke Dow getting a little bit further from a joke at times, which oh, is no. interesting. I know, I know. I'm giving it away. <laughs> My church You're giving it up now. <laughs> The people will know. I think that's really cool. David, before we wrap up, I have a segment at the end of the show, which mm. is what is your favorite thing in your wallet? It could be an NFT, an ERC-20, whatever, but what is your favorite thing in your wallet? Oh, my God. My favorite thing. Well, yeah, I'm, try I'm trying not to, you know, like deify coins um, <laughs> if I can, trying to distance my own identity from them. But, yeah. To the extent I had to pick one, my Moonshot bot, which is my PFP, is one that's really meaningful. I, I love how lo-fi it is, which is beautiful. Like, things should be lo-fi. Um, they're much more relatable. Like, every time I've changed to, like, a PFP of something beautiful, people are like, this is intimidating. Um, but it also it also is one of those projects that did what I was talking about with Ecodub before. It was set on a bonding curve and which is, first of all, a great way to sell NFTs. And the money went towards public goods funding. And so I'm able to show that off. Like, I'm interested in thinking, you know, what what is the status that we're building, not in saying how much money I have, but if anything, what's how much have I supported things I care about? And if we can move status in that direction, you might still have some qualms about people being status-seeking about how they use money, and that's totally reasonable. But I like this idea that the Moonshot bot fundamentally conveys a value alignment in a way that most NFTs and PFPs do not. So that's a utopia, David. That's another version of a utopia. Everyone having moonshot bots is a utopia. <laughs> Lo-fi, like, just mean, your version yeah, of I'm a utopia. Imagine, like, even five years from now when it's everything is VR and, like, you walk into the metaverse and you're, like, walking around, like, everyone's appearing there as, like, the crypto punk or, like, whatever new hentai bunny cat, like, <laughs> weasel combination that they have. It's, like, flicking around its 3D tail and, like, glaring at you. And I'm just going to be, like, this two-dimensional flat robot. You know, just shuffling around, jumping around awkwardly. This is what it's I It's like want. a little buzzy but every once in a while. This is, this is my utopia. <laughs> well, David, thank you for sharing your utopia on the show. Where can people <laughs> find you? Uh, and your moonshot bot. Yeah, Twitter, divine underscore economy, and um, Substack, davidphelps.substack.com. 
Beautiful. Thanks for coming on the show, David. Thank you, Chase. My pleasure. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.